Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, welcome to this episode number 346 of Charlotte Readers Podcast Beyond 300. I'm here with my co-hosts, Sarah Archer and Hannah LaRue, and we've got a great lineup for you today. Yeah, we do. We have an author feature with um, Sylvia Molnar, who's just such a fascinating person. Her novel called The Nursery, such a great book about maternal fear and its looming madness, which has been described as hypnotic, powerful, and provocative. I'm excited for that one. It sounds so good. It is. Um, and next we have our book recommendation and writing topic discussion. But today for our recommendations, we're only, only going to recommend one book. And when we do so, we're going to celebrate that one book because it's book five in the Write Quote series called Writing Techniques and Characters. So we're going to share the forward and the reflections. And then we have some favorite quotes picked out to discuss. Yeah, but uh, first, we're just going to get right at it. <laughs> we're going to jump right into the interview section after this little... Uh, Groovy town thing here. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Because it is, after all, July 4th. We're jamming. Happy We're jamming holidays, today. folks. Here we go. <laughs> all right. Here we are in the interview section. So. Uh, yeah. Sorry, Sylvia, but, you know, we just have to. She'll appreciate. We didn't have any stars and stripes and banners to play today, so we just had to go with that. That works. Um, I like it. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, look, we're, uh, this is uh, Sylvia Molnar. Uh, the book title is The Nursery. Uh, Sarah, why don't you tell us a little bit uh, about our featured author today? Yeah, uh, Sylvia Molnar is the foreign rights director at a New York-based literary agency. She's also the author of a chapbook called Saw Split. Her work has appeared in Guernica, Lit Hub, T- Triangle House Review, Two Serious Ladies. I love that name. <laughs> the Buenos Aires <laughs> Review and New Runschau. Um, she's from Budapest and was raised in Sweden, and now she lives in Austin. And The Nursery is her debut novel. All right, uh, Hannah, give us a little uh, synopsis of the book here. Yeah, this this book is just fantastic. Um, she writes so brutally, honestly, about just postpartum period. And um, it's kind of like the before and the after, withering in the maternal prison of her apartment. A new mother finds herself spiraling into a state of complete disaffection. As a translator, she's usually happy to spend her days as the invisible interpreter. But now home along with her uh, newborn all by herself, she's kind of ill at ease with this state of perpetual giving, caring, feeding, just all of the things. Um, the instinct to keep her baby safe conflicts with the intrusive thoughts of causing the baby harm, and she struggles to reclaim her identity just as it seems to dissolve from underneath her. Very oh honest. No. Very, it's, oh no. it's <laughs> Nothing happens to the baby, and she'll tell you that no, that's, that's <laughs> in, the, in the interview. Yeah. No, such a no, great book. No animals were harmed in the filming of this scene. Is that right? <laughs> no, and you know, the, it's it's such a it's a beautiful book, really. And I, f- I feel like yeah. you're just gonna like cry a lot in good ways and bad ways. But yeah, she got a ton of praise for it too. It's uh, Jessamine Chan says that it's a radical novel. Sylvia Molnar's astounding debut d- demonstrates that the intricate workings of the female mind deserve our most reverent attention. Um, she's ex- obsessed with this book. And then Rita Bullwinkle, author of Belly Up Stories, love that title, (laughs) says that Sylvia's portrait of the postpartum world is ruthlessly true and exacting. It was electrifying to experience the days of early motherhood through Molnar's razor-sharp realism and wit. Yeah, and I had a chance to listen to this uh, as we were editing, and uh, Hannah having come off of that has it been how many months now is, it, is she seven months old now? yeah she's seven yeah. months yesterday i can't believe it well, actually by the time we record this she's gonna be almost 10 months or whatever i mean i, can, I can't even out. yeah i can't yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah so uh let's listen to hannah's uh interview with sylvia right now hey listeners we're here with sylvia molnar today who's the author of the nursery her debut novel um sylvia thank you so much for joining us you're in austin right I am. Yes. Thank you for having me. Oh, yeah. We're so I, I was actually just in Austin a couple of weeks ago, and I feel like it's such a creative city. I'm sure it was uh, a good place to start writing this book and to get it out there. Yeah. Yeah. We've moved here um, almost four years ago now. So okay. even awesome. in that amount of time, the, the city has changed a lot. 
Oh, I can imagine. Um, so the nursery, I was just telling Sylvia before we uh, hopped on here, this is one of, I just loved this book so much. You know, I, as a lot of you guys know who listen to the show, I just had uh, my first baby girl last um, fall and the narrator of this novel also gave birth to a daughter um, and she calls her Button throughout the book, which I think is, uh, you know, cute but also when you read the book it's it's kind of a darker um subject matter it deals a lot with postpartum depression depression in general um what made you decide when when did you decide this is what you wanted to write about what inspired you to write this so um when i was pregnant with my first child um this was now uh almost over four years ago and um you know even just like the physical change um was so um, so new to me. And so in the beginning, I was just like taking a bunch of notes and was just like curious about like, you know, I guess like I've always been intrigued by, you know, reality and fiction can like, can be like so close to each other, but then right. like allowing yourself to like play in fiction. Um, and so I was just taking a bunch of notes and then I did feel as soon as I gave birth that, I had this like hunger and need for um, stories that, you know, uh, also depicted this experience. And I couldn't really find anything out there that was kind of like speaking to me. Um, And so I just kind of started like to essentially write it for myself um, and became sort of more and more um, kind of comforted by this story, even though it, you know, it has... Um, quite a few sort of dark moments as well. Mm. Um, But it was almost as if like I was writing it to myself, you know, kind of wishing I had had this book as a kind of comfort. Right. You know, you bring up an interesting point. And that was one of the first things I thought of when I was reading this. It was super easy for me to read this uh, within like a day. (laughs) Because same kind of idea, you know, it's there really isn't a whole lot out there that sort of depicts that darker turn at the when you give birth to your um, first child or your second child, you know, it's just such a different thing that happens to your brain and your body. Um, and, you know, I feel like it's like you look on social media or different, it's all these things about how wonderful motherhood is. And that's true, but it's nice to be kind of seen, um, when you don't, you have those darker moments. Um, there's a line in the book that I jotted down that I just felt like really captured, a lot for me. Um, and it says, she forces me to go on. So I go on, I must go on. But from where do you pull more of yourself after you have given everything? And yet you do, you do have more. Um, I kind of wanted to talk about that a little bit, just that whole theme. I feel like, um, you know, being a mother and giving so much of your body and your life to your child, um, you really kind of wonder, how do I get give more, you know, so what can you talk a little bit about that and how you sort of wanted to tie in that thought um, into the book? Yeah. Um, So I think it was also this like idea of, um, you know, like trying to depict a state that is so drastically different from what you were just a few days Mm -hmm. ago, um, or even just like just before the event. And so um, I came, so after a while sort of writing this book, it, it it did become like clear to me that it has to be like contained within, within four walls. It has to be contained right. within a certain amount of time. So roughly we're, we're following our protagonist for about a week or 10 days. Um, you know, just as she's like come, come home from the hospital with the baby and, you know, and you go through the sort of inner turmoil that she has about not being able to, um, to, to want to go back into the world, to want to go back to her, to her job or, or like, just like going out into the world again. And so with that line, I was also just like thinking of like exploring the themes around motherhood where, you know, imagine like this like state that you suddenly enter where everything you were before, whether you were an artist, a painter, a scientist, um, is suddenly just like, shifted so drastically because you you are obligated to take care of somebody who is very new to you uh, and somebody you know at the sort of infant stage is not really um like infants are pretty selfish you know yeah <laughs> R- rightly so <laughs> uh, right. because that's all they're capable of doing 
Um, but that can be kind of like a shock to your system and to your identity and, and, and whatever sort of like imagery you've ha you have of like the kind of mother that you want to be doesn't really even like kind of fully blossom at that stage because um, you are so much like physically bound to this new person in your life. And so you're just like giving and giving and giving. And it can, you know, if you're also sleep, de sleep deprived, it can be difficult to grapple with like the physical challenges that you're going through. And I was very fascinated by revealing as much of that in fiction um, as possible to, you know, make it both like a captivating story for others to read, but also kind of like share those sides of this experience that people may not know of. Right. And I think, um, I mean, with that line and many others in the book, too, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing where um, the narrator is definitely very fearful, I think. Like, she's afraid of a lot of things. She's sad. She's going through this huge transition, but she also loves her baby. And that's something else that you can really feel in the pages. So how is that? I mean, writing about two very um, intense emotions, like love, fear, and I guess more than two, but just kind of feeling that depression, but also like loving your child, you know? Um, how was that sort of writing about that? Yeah, I was very um, aware from the very beginning that I didn't want people to feel that um, something bad is going to happen to the baby. And right. I don't think that's like a spoiler alert um because because um i it, it's it's so, sort of as if like i still wanted to like hold the reader and lull them and and or just like comfort them but also like be honest about um um you know some some sides to this experience and so um cuz cuz i feel like as as a writer you also kind of have to decide a little bit like what certain actions in a book mean to a reader so let's say you know you know if i was going more towards like the darker elements then it's possible that i'm opening it up to like a horror story or like a thriller and it's just not something in this case that i was um interested in I, and mm -hmm. and i just wanted to um really sort of take time in um in giving space to those moments where a person may have dark thoughts but doesn't actually like fully go go there but then like how do you how do you um like when when do you pull back when you know what do you do with these thoughts um can you pass it on to somebody can you can you avoid shame in these dark moments um and so just kind of like sitting with that and 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 exploring that as much as possible um but kind of you know, being aware of um, the limitations of that, I was I was inter interested in. Right. Oh, I think it's amazing. And um, something else too is the fact that I think um, I mean this book speaks to mothers for sure, um, but also women. You know, the role of a woman, uh, just the role. But you know, mm. it's it's kind of like difficult. I think you you really did a good job with uh, in her relationship with her husband, John. Um, just kind of like, he's a good guy. He's a, he's mm -hmm. a nice guy. He's like a good partner and all of that. But it's it, it's kind of uh, his character really sort of highlights the, the fact that it's really hard for a man to understand um, what a woman goes through, not only in childbirth, but also just in gen general, I think it kind of can be that way. Um, so is that kind of what you were thinking with their marriage, like having him, cause you know, really there's three care, well, I guess four characters in the book, but like that family, the family is like the most central part. Um, was that sort of on your mind as you were crafting his character and his role? Yeah, definitely. Um, cause I wanted to also, um, talk about you know what a change like this does to a new marriage or to to um, to this like um, dynamic where you know suddenly you have uh, button this baby as as a new person in their lives and how differently they um, are responding to button and also um, how differently they want to move on uh, or just like continue with their relationship. Um, and so I wanted somebody who, um, you know, who who was who was physically present, but maybe not always like able to see 
um, or fully grasp what our protagonist is, is going through internally. Right. And within the family, he's the only one that has a name uh two that we know about right so you chose to leave the narrator nameless um and button is kind of the nickname for the baby um why did you decide to do that i um i thought about that for a long time and 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 i just felt that like if i have a few of these like limitations then hopefully more people would see themselves in these characters or um you know see other people that they know in these characters kind of like this like maybe a little bit more of this like relatability um, factor where I think in a book, as soon as you introduce a name, you know, there's so much more culture and history to even a name. And, um, and, you know, there's a a lot of value in that too, but, but um, I wanted to kind of like still have this like um, still like very claustrophobic feel um, for, um, for most of these characters where like, like you know a little bit about our protagonist's background, but not too much and kind of like having, having like a little bit of mystery around her would hopefully kind of also put a lot more emphasis on all, on all the feelings that she's going through and emotions that she, she's going through. Right. I think also for me reading it too, I think it's, it's kind of important symbolic in a way that she doesn't have a name because you sort of lose your identity um, in that period after you yeah, give that's birth, true. you know, you're just sort of like, who am I anymore? You don't recognize your body. You don't recognize, um, you know, your, your current lifestyle. It's just such a huge thing. And uh, again, you know, such a big part of the book is that you use like your body is used to keep some, somebody else alive. So you're dependent on in a way that's never um, happened before. So I think I thought that that was such a clever thing to do. And it's, it's kind of a neat thing too. I didn't even think about the fact that it's, it's more, um, well, I guess I was just picturing myself (laughs) the whole time I was reading it. So I guess that makes a lot of sense, right? (laughs) Um, and you know, I'm laughing right now. It's so funny, but there, it's actually kind of a humorous book in some ways too. Like I found myself, it's, it's, it's like a, a tough subject matter to read in parts where, you know, I've, I feel like I went through all these, this roller coaster of emotions. You're, you're feeling um, sad. You're feeling uh, the pain that the narrator feels. You're remembering things from your own experiences if you're a mother. Um, but it's also kind of funny some, oh, in good. some places. So I would be, I'd be like laughing. <laughs> Did you intend to do that? Were you trying to weave in some humor there just to kind of, um, switch up the tone a little bit yeah I mean it's it's incredibly hard to be funny in in writing but but um I did I did want to break it up you know both in terms of like um you know in in certain sections you see our protagonist um like her you see her google searches um but you know don't necessarily see like the information that um she gets from that um which is like another form of like breaking up you know some of the larger or some of the darker chapters that right um that are um you know are carry a lot of weight and also with the humor you know sometimes like like it's it's so difficult i think with depression because um whether it's it's postpartum depression or 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 depression in general um you know not that i'm a medical expert but i i I do feel that like with depression you do feel that all of your choices are lost to you and taken away from you and it's really really hard to push through um when you're in that cloud uh, or when that you know curtain has been like pulled in in front of you and to then kind of like try to still weave in light and humor feels just kind of like your light like what's it called like your kind of like your lifeline lifeline yeah Yeah. and and so you know so so it, it was hard to it was difficult to know like how much to pepper some of that in to not um you know to to still make sure that I respected the emotions that the protagonist is going through but also like you know nobody like it's 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 very hard to kind of like um take too much uh darkness as well you know like you you have to kind of like um have some light yeah yeah I love that um are you able to read a little bit of the book to us 
Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so I picked um, just kind of the the beginning where we um, we have the protagonist um, still in the hospital, um, and the but this is just after birth. After they put her on my chest in the early morning, I was like what you see scattered along a highway, an item once of value. I was a can of soda, a sock, a half-smoked cigarette, a piece of gum, a headless toy, or a pair of used underwear. I was a lonesome cap without its bottle. I had been run over and pushed to the side through traffic, wind, and other forms of aggression. At the same time, a dissipating high told me that I could do it all over again. It was the body tricking me into thinking that giving birth made me invincible. In the rushed moments after Button was born, the room buzzed with nurses and doctors coming in and out, checking on me, checking on the baby, checking on information listed on screens, lines and numbers here and there. Controls were pushed. Bed sheets, pillows, and crinkly paper covers were adjusted or discarded and replaced with fresh ones. Liquids poured out of me, liquids were pushed into my veins, and a catheter was pricked into my urethra. The day was on wheels, including us, and the next thing I knew we were being carted around. This is just one example of how life is made, and in my case it was done brutally. But I'm not sure it's possible to avoid brutality in birth. Brut, brutus, bruto. A man-made beast is not quite what I, what I mean when wanting to describe the experience, and yet it's the first thing that comes to mind. Words and expressions flickered in front of my eyes. John bounced gently to and from, always in the way of someone trying to get to me and unsure of how to manage his presence around others. He said he was relieved that Button was born on the weekend. It helped him avoid taking time off from work whereas I had no understanding of time. I only wanted to know where we were, we were being taken. While I was rolled down long, nondescript hallways, I kept thinking, I give in to this moment. I didn't have a choice. In the evening, when the stream of hospital employees or our friends and John's family died down, and the room was still as if I were forgotten, all I felt were my early exposed nipples, sore from Button's first sucks. There were faint echoes of babies crying and nurses chatting in the background, indicating that the night shift would soon begin. The lower part of my body was numb from medication, and with my crotch awkwardly wet from an ice pack melting between my legs, I wanted to twist her head. Button had been with me for a handful of hours, she had been silent for most of this time, and there came an urge, as direct as hunger. Let's wring you like a wet cloth. The dark hospital room took my want and immediately threw it back at me. Oh, that was a great selection to read. I feel like, you know, listeners, you probably get a really good idea of just like what you're getting into. (laughs) So many different emotions, you know, and it makes me, it gives me goosebumps because I just remember those moments too um, in the hospital. So you're just like, oh, there's so many things that are happening. Um, I'm curious to know if you interviewed other women about while you were writing this book or what kind of research you did. I know probably some of this, like you were saying, you've, you have kids and probably based on some of your experiences but did you conduct any additional research the research I actually did was more um, containing some of the other characters in the book so in the book you also meet Peter who is um, the upstairs neighbor of our protagonist and he starts coming down to complain about the baby crying and they develop a friendship of sorts, our protagonist and Peter, and he's an older man. Um, His health is kind of failing him, and um, he has just lost his wife. Um, And so they're both going through a kind of grief together, and um, uh, Peter's wife uh, was a bryologist. She was studying moss, and so I kind of wanted to... Um, dig a little bit deeper into her work and like what it would mean to be um, studying plants and um, and so um, it it became 
I feel like the sort of motherhood aspects or themes in the book um, were researched in the sense of that I was just this like sponge taking in all kinds of information, impressions from um, from women who were also, you know, going through the same experience in my life uh, or things that I was like seeing or reading online or even through movies. Um, but I think in a more kind of like practical sense, it was um, uh, it was the other part that I, I did a little bit more kind of like, um, yeah, practical research. Yeah. Oh, I like that. So do you storyboard or are you kind of a plotter or do you kind of write? I think uh, we've been calling it uh, plotters and pantsers. So <laughs> I'm a pantser, right? So I'm just like, I'm going to do it. <laughs> when do I do it? And then we have the plotters and the planners. So which oh one gosh. are you? <laughs> I'm very jealous of the plotters and planners, I must say. Um, and I, yeah, let's see. Let's see if I'll do it differently for, for a next book. But um this was it I, I I don't feel any shame in saying that um it definitely took me like a good fifty drafts to yeah. get to this state. And I didn't quite understand that you can be a writer actually when you're editing. So I heard this um I th- I think you would really like her if you haven't read her before. There's this British poet, Hannah Sullivan, um uh, I think she's published by FSG in the U.S. and okay. she also writes about motherhood and um, and I heard this interview with her once where she explained how she's like a writer on the page where like I'm very happy to like like use early drafts and then like as I'm going through each scene or each sentence like really like expanding from there moving things around um, and so so there there. I guess I would say like the first 20,000 words is very much like that's where I'm most precious because I'm just like collecting words and and scenes and things like that. And then, and then closer to like, like future drafts, then I can, I'm with this book. I, I started seeing like, okay, what is, you know, what is the framework, you know, and then like how much more can I contain things or make things claustrophobic within this framework and so it's it's definitely not the most efficient way of writing probably but but i um but it was it was a really interesting learning experience um yeah and everyone has their own style i think and that's what makes your book unique and i think that's amazing and just a note on that too i uh i know your team um told us that lisa lucas who is the vp of pantheon books um this was the first book that she ever edited herself is that right yeah yes yeah, amazing yeah. how did that feel <laughs> oh i mean she's such a force and such a amazing figure um and is so intelligent such a great reader and it was wonderful to have her insight on this for sure yeah I thought that was so amazing like what a cool thing um I'm sure she's a busy person too so and she seems so passionate about this which you know after reading it I totally understand why um so I always like to ask this question uh before we sign off um what would you tell before so the person you were before you started writing this book um what would you as a writer now having finished it tell that person oh and so so the person I was before is trying to finish this book yeah and... <laughs> so like some some words of encouragement like what have you learned what what would you tell your younger writing self <laughs> I would say that giving close to everything is going to pay off oh, that's yeah <laughs> I love that <laughs> Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I like I told you um, ahead of time. I wish that we could just talk for like twenty five hours because yeah. I just there's so many things in this that I would love to just dive more into. But I really appreciate you taking the time to come chat with us today. This was so much of fun. Of course. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. We have a newsletter called Beyond Three Hundred, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. 
All right, uh, listeners, we're back, and uh, we're in Act 2. This is uh, where we focus on writing topics and book recommendations, and today we've really just uh, we've kind of combined the two because we're going to be featuring one book, and that book is Book 5 in the Write Quote series titled Writing Techniques and Characters. It's the thickest uh, of all the books in the series, and that's because, well, there's the most <laughs> stuff in there. <laughs> it's uh, We deal with all kinds of things. writing. Te- we asked a lot of questions over the years, the three of us did, um, of these authors, and um, they told us about various writing techniques. We kind of broke it down. We talk about the hook, emotion, theme, conflict, uh, humor, plot, setting, structure, memoir, poetry, nonfiction, short stories. And then we dive into uh, characters, uh, where we talk about characters themselves, but also point of view uh, and dialogue. And these are all quotes that come to us uh, from the uh, authors who've appeared on the show from uh, more than 33 states and uh, four or five countries. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of good stuff, and as I say, the thickest in the bunch. And it's going to be fun. We're going to play the forward uh, and the reflections today. Uh, Sarah wrote the forward for this, and uh, let's listen into that. And then we're going to come back and uh, talk about uh, a few favorite quotes from this book. If you've been reading the Write Quote series in order, you've already absorbed plenty of wisdom about how writers learn to write and how they gather research and inspiration. In the final three books in the series, you'll read about how authors build communities, edit their material, survive rejection, then publish their work and market it to an audience. But this is the book that dives headfirst into the technical elements of the writing itself. It's where the rubber meets the writing road. This is what it's mostly all about. These technical elements of writing, things like theme, plot, setting, and structure, are the building blocks of the first draft stage of the writing process. While many writers prefer revising, I admit I'm partial to the first draft. In some ways, it's the hardest part of writing, where you start with a blank page. But that's also where you get to experience the magic of creating something out of nothing. It's where your characters are most apt to surprise you as they're finding their way into life. It's the most intense, pure act of imagination. Plus, it's pretty satisfying to watch that word count grow. By the end of it, you're rewarded with a book, or a poem, short story, essay, play, or screenplay. Maybe it is an absolute mess of a first draft, with buttons undone and dirt on its face and straw on its hair, but it is an actual book. Some of these technical elements of writing can be complex and persnickety. When I wrote my first novel, I had never really thought about point of view. I defaulted to third person because I thought, naively, that was the simplest. It wasn't until I got notes from my agent that I realized, wait, you're not supposed to hop randomly out of your main POV into other characters' heads? The quotes in this book are instructive for approaching these thorny craft issues but we promise not to conjure up memories of any soporific high school English classes. While the advice in these pages is specific and practical, our authors also delve into lively topics like writing with humor, what makes a good love story, and how to grab your reader with an exciting hook. This book places special emphasis on characters because they're so key to a compelling story. As these authors remind us, a well-drawn plot may excite your readers' minds and pull them in, but your characters are what reach their hearts fascinating and emotionally nuanced characters entice readers to open your book again and again so they can spend more time in these people's company. Like New York Times bestselling novelist Wiley Cash says, characters are always foremost to me. The books are about the relationships between the characters. Whatever form or genre you're writing in, these quotes have something to support your journey through the world of wordcraft. We hope they help you as you hit your writing road. All right, we're back. Uh, Sarah, thanks uh, for that forward, uh, getting us started here today uh, with this. Uh, you know, there's so many ways we could go about this, but we've got so many, I guess, so many sections of this book, uh, we can't cover them all. So uh, the three of us, we just kind of picked a few quotes that uh, we liked, uh, that we we would talk about in different categories. And Anna, we'll start with you. You picked uh, something from one of the authors who've been on our show many times, Judy Goldman, on the topic yeah. of memoir. Yeah, I love this quote. Um, Judy says, memoir is the narration of revelation, which means you're learning something while you're writing. Um, You're learning about all the deepest patterns of your own personality, and the reward for writing memoir is self-understanding. I just felt like that was really a profound statement, and I always love reading memoirs just because I feel like, as a reader, you're also learning about yourself. You see parts of yourself in the writer, and you you can kind of hold their hand on their journey as to understanding themselves. It's just kind of a... um, very intimate relationship as you're reading a memoir. And I just felt like that captured that perfectly. Yeah. And I uh, haven't written full blown memoir, but I've written some personal stories and it, uh, it is nice uh, when you sort of dive back into 
some of your own past uh, t- to maybe sort of be able to reflect on it and what happened. Yeah. I think that's what Judy's talking about, that uh, you're learning uh, because you're learning about yourself and uh, maybe how you think about something. What are your thoughts, sir? Yeah, and I think this is interesting because it, it definitely applies to memoir, but even to writing fiction. I think like when she says the reward for writing memoir is self-understanding, I think you can gain self-understanding through writing poetry, through writing fiction, through writing a play or a screenplay. Like anytime you're writing, even if it's about other people or about fictional people, you're kind of playing with your own mind and patterns and experiences and the way that you see the world too and hopefully you're tapping into some emotions and experiences that feel authentic to you in some way even if you've kind of couched them in a different context in the story so I think you definitely learn a lot about yourself too when you're writing anything yeah that's great Uh, all right thanks for that quote uh, Judy and uh, we're gonna jump to one of Sarah's quotes now Sarah's got one from I think it's the very first section of this book uh, where these different authors talk about this thing called the hook. Yeah, it's appropriately the first section because you have to hook the reader (laughs) right away. (laughs) Um, But this quote is from uh, Matthew Duffus. He says, with so many options now for entertainment, we've got to be quick. We've got to hook readers and we've got to keep things moving. Um, And I think that's so true. I mean, there's just such an explosion of content in the modern world. Like when you're writing a book, you're not just competing against all the other books that have ever been published and all the books that are coming out now, but also everything that anyone can access from their phone. (laughs) So there's just this infinite amount of entertainment and content that's constantly available that you as an author are now competing against. And so I think there's more pressure than ever to hook people really quickly. Like if you don't have the reader interested somehow in the first page, they're very likely now are not going to keep going. I think they've actually statistically shown that people like when they listen to audiobooks, a lot of times they don't listen all the way through. They tend to not finish books as much. Um, so that just means there's more pressure that you've got to you've got to have something interesting to grab people and then keep it moving. Yeah, no throat clearing uh, on the page, please. You can do it in your drafts, <laughs> but uh, not, not in the final product. Well, Hannah, I like uh, there's a lot of times we have overlap between uh, writing techniques and uh, marketing techniques. But this idea of the hook uh it applies very much so, does it not, to uh, pitching a book and marketing your work? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you think about like the subject line of an email. I feel like that's kind of an art in its own when it comes to marketing PR. Um, um, but yeah, so I feel like, sorry, everybody I have a cold today, so I'm literally like clearing my nostrils right now. <laughs> Just keeping it honest, <laughs> as usual. <laughs> Hannah's gonna. That's my hook we're, for the day. We're, we're, we're about to slide right through that. Nobody would have known the difference when I edited that little pause out, but Hannah's going to give you the footnote. I'm right just going to let you again. know. What you see is what you get with me. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, yeah, you read so much and hear so much, and I learned a lot about like the art of crafting a subject line and like with writing press releases, you have to have a, a headline that kind of hooks the person that you're pitching to. You have to really kind of like make a splash with every word. Um, it's funny because you would never really think like, okay, you know, emails, just write an email. It's fine, whatever. But no, it takes a long time to write something that's kind of short and quick. Um, you think about elevator pitches too, right? It's like that's kind of the same idea. So it's totally apl- applies to that. Yeah, I like to be drawn into a book quickly um, and uh – you know, I guess that's why I'm drawn to to mysteries and thrillers, you know, kind of get introduced uh, to the scene and the character pretty quickly. So uh, keep that in mind. Uh, it's a great, great advice from Matthew um, about writing. And another section, early section in the book uh, is about conflict. And I chose uh, a quote uh, by Alice Osborne. It's pretty short, but I think it, uh, it says a lot in a few words. Uh, the quote is, you have to find the biggest conflict and the biggest need. Um, and of course we're talking about fiction, but it could apply to nonfiction as well because there's nonfiction conflict uh, as well. And there are characters in the nonfiction world who have certain needs that kind of keep the, uh, the story moving, but, but very much so in fiction, um, you got to find out, I think what the, the character wants and what they need, uh, because then you got to put some uh, obstacles in their path, right? <laughs> and yeah. make sure that they can't get it. And, <laughs> and conflict is a real driver um, of a narrative. We talked about uh, a hook. Uh, usually in that early scene, there is something going on where somebody's either in internal conflict uh, or they're dealing with some external conflict. They might be hanging by their fingernails from a cliff. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
and somebody who might be trying to push them off uh, early in the book. Uh, but some, you know, finding that conflict will really uh, cause the reader to want to turn the page because they're going to want to find out what's going to happen. You know, either how these two characters are going to solve this or how they're going to get out of this. But uh, uh, your thoughts, Sarah, on uh, from a fiction standpoint? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting quote too because biggest conflict and biggest need is relative and you have to think about the context of the book. Like it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have, you know, earth shattering the fate of mm. the universe is in the balance right. in every story. Like it just has to matter to your characters, even if it's like uh, a little girl who lost a necklace that a friend gave her, like maybe in the scheme of things, that seems like a pretty small conflict or a pretty small need that she wants to find it again. But if it really matters to her and we know the emotional backstory there, then it feels important. So it's about creating it, a need that feels big to your characters. Yeah. And it's, um, well, like in Sylvia's book, the, the nursery that Annie interviewed her on today, there was a lot of obviously internal conflict and that can sometimes be just as important as the external conflict. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and in that book too, you know, it's a very quietly done scenario where it takes place over the course of like a week, I think. Um, so, you know, it's, it, you, you see so much internal conflict in her brain that to the time kind of seems a lot longer. <laughs> and I think when you need something to like for in that book, I'm just Sylvia, I'm just going to keep using this example right now, but she, it's like, she needs to find some sort of stable ground, um, and to find who she is again. Right. So it's like, it just, but it makes time go so much slower. It makes the book feel longer. It makes everything, you know, but it's just, it kind of stretches everything out and gets a lot deeper. Mm. Yeah. And uh, Sarah, you've got a quote here that ties in another section of the book that kind of springs forward off of the hook and off of conflict. It's, it's emotion. So share that with us. Yeah. Um, this is from Carrie Knowles. He says, what fiction is about is what is the emotional truth? The most important thing with that is to understand what happened before an event, which frames how that person reacts to the event. Um, and I think that there's a lot of truth in this quote about truth. <laughs> there, there's also, there's a quote from Hemingway, which says something about, um, I'm paraphrasing, but it's like write one true sentence. And I think that idea of just finding some truth in your writing is so important. You know, if you can tap into something that feels like your readers understand it and they recognize it to be a true thing about the way that the world works or the way that people work, um, particularly if you can maybe bring out something that they they know or they've noticed, but they've never really consciously thought about before or never thought about in that way or in those words. And you can bring that to the, the surface on the page. That's really, really powerful. So I think just trying to be honest about the world and tap into truth in your writing is, um, is huge. And also what she says here about the important thing is to understand what happened before an event, which frames how the person reacts. I think that's, that's really important too, is sometimes the most powerful moments in a book only work because they've been set up in the right way. You set up all the groundwork for who the character is and what their needs are and what their flaws are, what their backstory is, so that when you get to that big emotional moment, it really hits. Yeah, and Carrie, is uh, she's a novelist but also a short story writer, and, and we talked about this on the podcast, uh, I think sometime when she wrote, uh, I think the title of the short story book was Black Tie Optional, and it was a story about a woman who's taking a little boy to school because someone else couldn't take him and he's very annoying in terms of talking, but he's he's trying to get his tie just right because he's going to be an event, an event or something. And she's just frustrated the whole time. But he's but he's got some uh, learning disabilities, but he really wants to get this tie just right. And when someone toward the end of the story doesn't treat him with the respect that he deserves, even though you think from the outset that she doesn't think much of him in this tie, she understands why he needs the tie. And her reaction at the end is totally borne by an evidence of what happened early in the story. So it's those kind of things. And like, you know, knowing what your characters have been through will help, you know, explain why they react uh, a certain way. And, you know, speaking of characters, <laughs> Hannah, you got a quote from Ron Rash. Uh, Oh, yeah. It's pretty good when you want to share that. <laughs> yeah, I love this quote. Um, Ron says, sometimes the characters do things that I can't quite understand, but it makes sense to them. <laughs> I love that because I love the whole idea of like thinking of your parent or your, your parents, your characters as like their own, you know, person that actually exists. They like visit your brain and they like live, you know, on your shoulder or whatever. <laughs> they kind of like <laughs> speak to you, um, even though they're not exactly in existence. So I thought that that was really kind of a funny way to put it, but just sort of like not, you can't always like, 
I don't know. You have to understand the characters that you're developing, like what they've been through, the things that they think about, you know, what are their hobbies and that kind of thing. And I feel like that's how you just let them take their story where it needs to go. Um, those are my favorite kinds of books where you can feel like that's been the case. Like when you kind of tying into, yeah, what we were just talking about, about like, you know, your character, like you setting something up in the appropriate way and knowing the history of a character and things like that. Like you can feel that authenticity on the page. Um, and I just, I don't know. I think that's a great frame of mind to have. Sarah, do you, uh, do your character sometimes do things that you don't quite understand? Yeah, for sure. And, and I like that because I feel like that means that they're becoming real. <laughs> if they have that much separation from me, then it's like, oh, this is a fully developed person with its own will or his or her own will. Um, so I think that that's a good sign, even if it's sometimes strange. <laughs> yeah, well, speaking of characters, uh, I've got a quote on plot. And the big question is sometimes which is more important, you know, plot or character. And it kind of shifted over time. Marty Kastrick was on the show and he said that Aristotle thought that plot was most important, but in the modern era, uh, it's character and plot is in service to the character. I believe that's what he said. Um, but this is kind of a, you know, everybody tries to think about plotting and do they, do they just sort of figure it out as they go or do they just have this plot, but there's got to be some plot or some plot subplot somewhere. And John Gilstrap explains uh, everything there is need to know about his plotting. It says, one of the great cheats in plot is that the characters who pay my mortgage are probably going to make it to the end of the book. <laughs> <laughs> so so if you're worried about, you know, the main character uh, in, in a thriller book that's a series that's going to last 10 books, you know, be comforted. They're probably not going to die. They're going to get close. They're going to have a lot of things happen <laughs> to them. But, uh, you know, he's he, he's right. Uh, you you don't want to kill. You don't want to kill off the main character <laughs> if you've got plans to write uh, a series. Uh, and we can't get too deep into plotting and uh, here uh, with these quotes. But there's a whole section there that talks about uh, how these authors approach plot and uh, you know what it means to the narrative. Same with the uh, with with the uh, character version of it. But then of course um, we've got setting, which uh, you know these are all we're sort of hitting all the the marks here for uh, this particular book. Uh, Sarah, you got a quote from Walter Bennett? Yeah, um, this is a quote from him about setting. He says, a sense of place can be a feeling that the author creates of grounding a reader. Um, and I think that's so important to think about. And some some people, like if you find a setting that you're really interested in, it becomes a big part of the book. But a lot of writers have a tendency to overlook setting because like you were just talking about Landis, it's usually like character and plot. And those are the two big things that people focus on. But setting is so important too. And I think it makes everything feel more real if you can make the setting feel real even if it's fantastical even if you're you know in a wizarding world or in on mars <laughs> or something like as long as it feels like a real fully realized version of that and a detailed version of that then it makes the characters feel much more real it gives them something to interact with and kind of work off of um sometimes you'll be reading a scene especially like a, a conversation this happens a lot where there's dialogue and it just kind of feels like dialogue floating in space <laughs> and it's just like line 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 but you don't really see the characters doing anything or see where they are um, and I think it's always important to flesh out those moments with a sense of place and like he's saying it really does ground the reader when you do that yeah I think Martin Kastrick also said maybe in this book uh, that you shouldn't be able to take your story from one location and just plop it down in another location uh, on the other side of the world and have it be similar uh to, to the narrative in, in the first story. There's got to be something different about, you know, where, where the story is set. And I love the fact that, you know, if, if I was thinking about a, uh, you know, a, a novel that was set uh, on a submarine, I might think of The Hunt, Hunt for Red October, right, where you learn all about submarines, the Tom Clancy deal, or, or you're set in the Wild West, or, you know, you're on a jalopy going across, you know, Grapes of Wrath, you know, you're moving across the country, or any other kind of journey uh, book of that type. And, uh I think uh, George Hovis said on the podcast that, uh, of course, this has been said many times before, but you know, since we're talking about characters here, the setting is uh, oftentimes can be and should be maybe a character you know, unto itself. And um, I imagine in Sylvia's book, The Nursery, probably that nursery was a setting, <laughs> was it not, Hannah? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was, or like the apartment that they were in, you know, it's like it totally added to the story. And it reminded me too of when uh, Megan Miranda was 
on the show yeah. and she was talking about how like thrillers you know you have to have that setting have it be kind of creepy and it really just sort of feeds into the story because if you don't have that for a certain vibe so like for a thriller for the nursery it's kind of a darker like you know inside of yourself type of feeling it's like yes this needs to take place in an apartment and like that's it so i mean it's totally a different you know character in the book i believe mm-hmm. that well in addition to um you know some of the techniques like hook emotion theme conflict humor plot setting and structure um we also have quotes in here about memoir poetry nonfiction, short stories and hannah you've got a quote uh, from pam turner in the poetry category Yeah, so Pam says, Poetry allows us to connect with each other and feel the beauty of our shared experience as humans. Um, Poetry also helps transform pain and suffering into something of beauty to transcend that mundane life and find something more important there. Um, I love that. I think uh, super, like for me, and I'm sure Sarah, for you as a poet who writes poetry, you know, it's just, it's like kind of a... um, it's like a vessel almost for your emotions and just like what you're thinking about in your mind and kind of being able to take maybe more painful experiences um, and turn it into something like beautiful and metaphorical and that you can kind of uh, create into a different scenario in your life. It kind of shifts perspectives for people who are reading it too. Um, And again, it's kind of similar, you know, poetry, memoir, like these kind of like personal, like very personal um, words that come from your experiences, your personal experiences, or from your soul like that I feel like it's just such a beautiful and emotional experience so I I love that quote yeah and Sarah you write uh, fiction and poetry and you write short and long fiction Uh, do you feel differently when you're writing poetry than you do when you're writing a longer narrative I think so Um, I think Pam kind of she puts it in a good way here that it's more emotional and that's something that she I think lives out and kind of walks the walk in her poetry too she's a really beautiful emotional writer Um, but yeah I think any sort of writing whether it's a novel um, a short story a poem you're probably going to hit on something emotional something about the way that humans feel but in poetry you tend to get at that most directly I think and approach it in the most straightforward path um, the most linear kind of root to that emotion and so I think that that also reflects on the experience that you have when you're writing it like sometimes you just get to that emotional place more intensely and more quickly when you're writing a poem than if you're writing um, some kind of narrative form I think yeah no it's uh, I don't have the talents uh, of a poet but I enjoy listening Uh, I I really like the spoken word uh, poetry that we've had some uh, authors on who've who've done that poets on who've, who've done the spoken word uh, but yeah, it's 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 great to get it in a, in a succinct, uh, a few words telling a long tale. You know, that's interesting to me. Um, all right, we're going to finish up with humor. I've got one quote here um, in the humor category. This is Martin Settle. He wrote uh, a book we had him on the podcast. It was Teaching During the Jurassic. It's really funny uh, about his years uh, teaching uh, middle school and high school. But here's his quote. If you can make the reader laugh, he or she is apt to get careless and go on reading. It kind of reminds me of like when you're trying to plan an event and you're like, just have wine there. Don't <laughs> <laughs> get drunk That's and right. just buy stuff. <laughs> exactly. If you do that, they're apt to stay. Yeah. Right? Buy your book. <laughs> <laughs> they might stay and buy your book. Give them two or three. They exactly. might buy two or three books. Yeah. Uh, no, and humor is one of those things that, I mean, people talk about what, can you teach humor? Can you not? teach humor when it comes to writing, but I think there's all different kinds of humor. There's, uh, um, you know, the, it, 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 there's wit, of course, and then there's uh, maybe the jokes, maybe there's the, the funny characters and so forth. Kind of reminds me, I don't know if y'all are watching The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on, on television, but by the time this comes out, I think the last season will have finished, uh, but uh, there's a scene in there, you know, she, she does stand-up comedy, uh, where it's sort of just spoken word and she's riffing on lots of different things in life. But her uh, father-in-law keeps saying, tell us a joke. <laughs> That's not a, you're not a comedian. <laughs> tell me a joke. <laughs> That's not a joke. You're just talking. <laughs> so there's all kind of humor. Um, and Sarah, you, your book had some humor in it, the novel you wrote, and uh, you write some short stories that some have humor in it. But it's, it's, not, it's not joke telling, right? Yeah, I mean, there's so many different types of humor. And I I do screenwriting as well. And a lot of that tends to be more like joke 
oriented, um, mm-hmm. especially I've written sitcom scripts in the past and those have to be like a really high joke density per page. Um, but I think that this quote in some ways almost ties back to what we were talking about earlier with the hook. Like if you can make the reader laugh, he's apt to get careless and go on reading that, that can be a great hook. If you can yeah. have something that's genuinely funny in the first paragraph, then chances are your reader is going to keep reading. Um, and it, it might not necessarily fit for every novel. I mean, something like the nursery is a very dark book. So I'm not sure if there's any humor in there, but you can have, there is actually, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And you can have like, like Landis was saying, like there's so many different types of humor and types of jokes and tones. And so even if it's a really dark emotional story, sometimes you can find a way to add some humor in there. Um, And I always love it when writers do that, when they can combine something really dark and emotional with comedy at the same time. I think that's, that's a really powerful combination. All right. Well, those are some of our uh, favorites by No Man's Were They All. In fact, we love every one of the quotes in the book. And so I'm going to play uh, the reflections now. These are my reflections uh, on this particular book on writing techniques and characters. Uh, so here we go. I'm excited to report that this book has sold more than one million copies and that Oprah has put it at the top of her list of best quote books ever, saying, Book five of the Right Quote series is a must-read for anyone seriously thinking about writing a book. Also, none of this is true, but it's a heck of a hook, right? Stories have to start somewhere, and so do quote books, which is why this book starts with a section titled The Hook, because as author Matthew Duffus, writing center director of Earlham College in Indiana, said, with so many options now for entertainment, we've got to be quick. We've got to hook readers, and we've got to keep things moving. Simply put, stories have to be engaging. As award-winning novelist John Buchan quipped, we don't write about the planes that land safely. It's no wonder these authors pay such close attention to the first few sentences and the first chapters of their stories. Those opening lines can form the promise for the entire story, and that initial chapter can have an inciting incident, grab attention, and dig deep holes for characters. There's more to good story than the first few lines in the first chapter. That's why this book in the Right Quote series is the longest, with more sections and content than any other book. That's why we got emotional about it. As award-winning author Randall Jones said, a good personal story engages with real life. It has to be addressing some universal issue of the human condition, something that most readers can connect with. Author Tara Lush agreed when she said, all good fiction evokes emotion. And author Kathleen Birkinshaw summed these ideas up well by saying, Time can pass, technology will change, but the need for human connection through emotions, that's timeless. Emotion cannot do it alone, however. Stories need themes, conflict, humor, plot, setting, structure, and characters. Most of these authors follow the advice of Stephen King. They don't set out to have a theme. They let themes percolate and grow within the story. And by doing so, they explore important questions. They may not set out to write for symbolism, but it creeps in, and they come to revelations, as do their readers. As for conflict, Alice Osborne, an author, singer, songwriter, and editor, told us, you have to find the biggest conflict and the biggest need. Novelist, poet, and writing instructor Maureen Sherbandi was more blunt when she said, if you don't have tension and conflict in your book, people will not read it. And the best-selling authors agree. John Hart said, you need to turn up the heat and cook away the soft parts. I love the section on humor that led off with this tip by writer, assemblage artist, and former teacher Martin Suttle. If you can make the reader laugh, he or she is apt to get careless and go on reading. These authors do that, and they infuse humor in their prose to break up the tension, the conflict we talked about above, and they tell us not to force humor. They treat humor as part of the whole experience. For some authors, like award-winning novelist Kimry Martin, whose medical thrillers touch on urology, she said, the jokes just kind of write themselves. Humorous Tracy Curtis called humor creative misdirection. But honestly, while these quotes are helpful to writing humor, they also reveal the writers can poke fun at themselves. For example, New York Times bestselling novelist Ron Rash shared this story. I had somebody tell me recently, I didn't know you were funny. I thought, well, I'm not Edgar Allan Poe. I enjoy writing humor. And then there's beloved storyteller Clyde Edgerton who shared this. We're on the back of a boat. We're working on a boat engine. And I say, I don't know nothing about no hydraulics. You boys go ahead and take care of the hydraulics. I'm going to be over here reading a little Shakespeare. 
With regard to plot, if you want to know who will live and who will die in New York Times bestselling novelist John Gilstrap's thrillers, here's the answer. He says, One of the great cheats in plot is the characters who pay my mortgage and are probably going to make it to the end of the book. It's just a question of what they have to go through to get there. Some of these authors admit that if they had plotted their first books, they might have written them faster. Others said the writer needs to be fair to the reader by developing a believable plot. And if it is a conspiracy, it needs to be one that makes sense. One writer talked about how plot is a vision of how the world works, and they all come up with their plots in different ways, with spreadsheets, plot charts, and outlines, or none of the above, preferring to sort the plot out in their head. They talk about surprises and setbacks, but most of all, momentum. As award-winning author Robert Emmons said, keep the story moving. Keep the momentum going. You just got to keep, keep going. What often makes a story unique is the setting. These authors remind us that stories should not be so portable that you can pick them up in one place and drop them down in another. That the setting can be a place in time as well as a place on a map. That a sense of place can help ground the reader. That world building is important. That every piece of land has a story the settings can be magical, urban, and rural, and they can be characters too, even an antagonist, like the frozen wastes of Jack London's Yukon Tales. Warring author and writing professor George Hovis went even deeper. He said, Ancient peoples were animist. They believed that spirits lived in trees and in the soil. In a sense, as a writer, we've got to practice literary animism. We've got to penetrate beneath the surface of place to divine its spirit, its essential character. The way we tie all this advice together and able to create a coherent story is with structure. Authors know that a framework is needed for their stories, but developing structure is easier said than done. A warning author, Webb Hubble, says, I have no idea how I'm going to finish a book when I start it. Warning author Peter Reinhardt was initially skeptical of structure, but came around to believing that structure actually is liberating. New York Times novelist Charlie Lovett said, it was watching the films of Alfred Hitchcock that taught me how to structure and thriller. There are acts and seasons and beginnings, middles and endings, and there are journeys for the heroes and the protagonist. Paul Reale, co-founder of the Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, summed up the challenge of structuring a novel when he said, A novel is a multi-year, extensive, brain-bending idea of a concept. In addition to novels, writers apply the techniques discussed in this book to memoir, poetry, nonfiction, and short stories. But because each of those genres is unique, we explored them further with their own sections. Warming the memoirist Judy Goldman said that a memoir should be twice as hard on themselves as they are on anyone else. The late Anthony Abbott, a member of the North Carolina Literary Hall of Fame and award-winning poet, said, When I sit down to write a poem, it's because in my head, in my heart, I know that this is a poem I have to write. Warming author Fry Galliard said this about nonfiction writing. Tom Wolfe, who wrote books like The Right Stuff, said that all of the possibilities that are open to the novelist or the poet are also open to the writer of nonfiction. You can develop character, you can deal in extended dialogue, you can develop a plot, you can explore a theme. Whatever it is that the fine novelist is doing, if you're working in these realms of nonfiction, that's available to you. And with regard to the short story, award-winning writer Jill McCorkle said, I think a short story is really more akin to a poem than the novel in many ways. Award-winning author Michael Cody offered a slight tweak to this idea when he said, I see short stories as landing somewhere on the spectrum between lyric, poetry, and the novel. We focus separately on the subject of characters and the accompanying techniques of point of view and dialogue because these writers believe characters drive the story more than anything else. New York Times bestselling novelist David Badalci said, I always gauge how much I'm into character by how fast I write the books. Award-winning author Renee Hunt Winchester said, I want to write more than anything a story that doesn't have stereotypes, where you can relate to the characters, where you know them, where you might be them. Characters have to be strong, weak, aggressive, vulnerable, and compelling. But most of all, they have to be real. As Wardering author Carrie Knowles said, if your main character is perfect, there is no story. Characters have to want things, and they have to work to get them. One of the reasons that writers love the characters is that they surprise and inspire them, and sometimes characters help them tell the stories. As columnist, novelist, and nonfiction writer John Hood said, let your characters help to tell the story. If you don't know exactly how your story is going to go, once you create good characters and situations, sometimes the result will surprise you, and that's good. And as award-winning author Michael Allman said, some of my new friends, the characters in my book, well, they had minds of their own. 
For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. All right, as we wrap up this section, uh, you can uh, order this book online and wherever books are sold. And when you do, you're supporting the podcast. Thank you very much for that. You can also join our street team. Uh, you can check out uh, the podcast books page on our website to learn how to do that. And if you uh, join our street team, we're going to send you those uh, ebooks uh, for free. And all you got to do is uh, give us an honest review. And if you join Patreon for as little as $5 a month, we'll send you uh, the ebooks as well. And uh, you're going to get more than just the ebooks. You're going to get. Uh, access to some exclusive episodes. So thank you for that. Thank you for listening. Uh, we got a little feedback on the podcast from an episode we did uh, a couple months ago. Uh, Sandra Adams uh, wrote in. Thank you, Sandra, for this. Uh, she was singing Hannah LaRue's praises, uh, talking Sandra. about uh, how much she enjoyed uh, Hannah's interview with uh, Marjorie Hudson uh, and her book. Uh, that book is what? Hannah Indigo Field, I think. It yeah, is. it's called Indigo Field. Yeah, yeah. And she says it was inspiring to learn how important a specific character develops what they say to other characters and what they don't say. And the example she gave was when they discussed the spiritual belief that a character uh, expresses a belief in God but doesn't admit to their feelings or or anger toward God. She thought that was thought-provoking. And uh, she talked about having similar character interactions herself. And uh, she just says, thank you for this interview and the insightful way, Hannah, that you interacted with this author. So there we go. Oh, thanks, uh, we'll Sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> Marjorie's a good conversation <laughs> partner, too. <laughs> yeah, there we go. All right. Well, um, it's always great to get feedback. Y'all can uh, send us that uh, to the podcast. Uh, let's see. What's coming next, Sarah? Uh, next time we've got a fun episode. We're going to feature New York Times bestselling author of the Anita Blake Vampire Hunter series, Lauren Hamilton, and her latest in the series called Smolder. We also feature writer, film producer, and musician David Weinberg, author of Jacob Marley on Broadway, in his blog post called Be the Reader. Plus, we're going to have a thought-provoking Charlotte Lit two-minute tip, elevator pitches, and book recommendations. All right, uh, well, Hannah, you want to take us out of here? Yeah, everybody, read on, ride, rock, ride on, and rock on. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Do what she said. 